0: And one of the beautiful things about nutrition is that it is so personalized and individual. And so what works best for one person might not be best for another, but this can make it confusing to know Mm -hmm. know, what's best for me. But there are some general principles that we can all certainly start with. And once we get these big things in place, there's plenty of room for self-experimentation or working with a professional to refine an approach that's best for your body and your particular stage of life.
1: So again, general principles is what we're going to cover today. And the key is if we stick to these and not get distracted by a lot of the minutia and the details, and we take those big ideas and apply them, you're probably going to get the majority of the benefit from your food.
0: Absolutely. So there's three different factors that we can play with when it comes to nutrition. And yep. we're going to spend time talking about each one of these three in depth today. And those are quality, quantity, and timing. We find that for most people, working on these things in this order tends to work best. But again, every single person's different. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Foucher-Cuyo, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, my husband, Dr. Danny, and I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is one of our Pursuing Health Pearls. In medicine, we refer to clinical pearls as small bits of freestanding information relevant to clinical practice, usually based on experience. Pursuing Health Pearls are shorter episodes in which Danny and I offer you succinct, high-yield info on common health conditions or other topics. We do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. With that, let's get started with this week's episode. Hey guys, just wanted to give you a little bit of context for this next episode before we dive in. Danny and I recorded this episode not too long before the tragic death of George Floyd and the ensuing riots building momentum for the Black Lives Matter movement. We just want you to know that we are very sensitive to the fact that not everyone has access to affordable, healthy food, and we're actively working on exploring this issue as well as other social determinants of health on upcoming podcast episodes. This episode is an answer to so many questions that we receive about nutrition and provides an overview for the framework that we use to approach nutrition ourselves. We tried to break it down into simple pieces, some of which, such as mindful eating and intermittent fasting, don't cost anything and are available to everyone. Our intent is not to make you feel overwhelmed or that you should be doing all of these things. That would be nearly impossible for most people, but rather to empower you with information so that you can make more informed choices yourself. So, with that, let's get started with the episode. All right, guys, welcome back to Pursuing Health Pearls. For our last few editions, we have been talking a lot about the importance of metabolic health. And now we're going to start to explore some of the most important tools that we have for improving metabolic health. So in this edition, we're going to be talking about our general approach to nutrition, which is obviously a huge topic and probably the cornerstone of metabolic health. And in the next edition of the Pearls, we're going to actually dive into the topic of sleep.
1: Before we get started, we want to remind you that we have made a big commitment not to accept any sponsors on the show and to remain as unbiased as possible for you. So that way, whatever we say, you're not thinking in the back of your mind, "Are they getting paid just to say it?" So, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we would love it if you support us by going to pursuing-health.com/slash-subscribe to become a pursuing health subscriber for as little as $4.99 a month.
0: And not only by doing this will you be supporting our ability to keep putting out podcast content like this, but You'll also get access to our workout programs, our exclusive discount codes, and live Q&A sessions that we do every single month with our subscribers. So again, if you're able to, we would greatly appreciate your support. You can head to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber.
1: All right. So nutrition is a topic we get (laughs) asked a lot. This is a
0: huge topic and we get a lot of questions about it and There's just so much conflicting information out there.
1: We always joke that probably the most polarizing or even more polarizing thing than religion is nutrition because everyone's got their own way of thinking about it. But what we'll do today is we'll kind of take a 30,000 foot overview, give you some general nutrition approach to nutrition to kind of think about all the concepts that you've probably heard of uh, online and elsewhere.
0: And one of the beautiful things about nutrition is that it is so personalized and individual. And so what works best for one person might not be best for another, but this can make it confusing to know, Mm -hmm. you know, what's best for me. But there are some general principles that we can all certainly start with. And once we get these big things in place, there's plenty of room for self-experimentation or working with a professional to refine an approach that's best for your body and your particular stage of life.
1: So again general principles is what we're going to cover today. And the key is if we stick to these and not get distracted by a lot of the minutiae and the details, and we take those big ideas and apply them, you're probably going to get the majority of the benefit from your food.
0: Absolutely. So there's three different factors that we can play with when it comes to nutrition. And we're going to spend time talking about each one of these three in depth today. And those are quality, quantity, and timing. We find that for most people, working on these things in this order tends to work best. But again, every single person is different. So if one person wants to start by working on food quality and another wants to start with timing, that's perfectly okay. It's all about making forward progress in whatever order makes most sense for the individual and their life situation. And we always say some action is better than no action and finding a starting place that makes sense. And is what you are willing to do is most important. So again, we're going to talk through each of these three different factors in detail here on this episode.
1: So the first factor we'll talk about, and it's where we typically like to start, is food quality. Mm -hmm. Now, as we talk about food quality, we're going to talk about a couple different things. We're going to talk about the difference between real food and processed food. Why processed food consumption is so high why we like to start with food quality first and the value of cutting out processed foods and sugar for a period of time, how to easily distinguish between real food and processed food, and then finally, we'll touch on pesticides, GMOs, and processed meats and seafood.
0: So it's a lot. We're definitely going to spend a bulk of our time here, but this is something that we are certainly passionate about and I think makes a world of difference when it comes to nutrition. So what are we talking about when we say food quality? The first characteristic of food quality that we should talk about is the distinction between highly processed food and real food, and this is a very important distinction to make. Now, processed food is essentially, There is actually a classification system for processed food, and it sorts foods based on the extent of the processing that they've gone through by the time that they get to your mouth, basically. And the system is called NOVA, and the most processed foods in the system are distinguished as called ultra-processed foods. Now, these are foods that are very energy-dense, meaning they have lots of calories in a small amount of food. They're very high in unhealthy types of fat, in refined starches, free sugars, and salt. And I think most importantly, they're very poor sources of protein, dietary fiber, and micronutrients. So, they're poor sources of nutrition, which is what what we're hoping to get from our food, right? Um, And these also, it's important to note that these foods are made to be hyper palatable. So they taste super good and they want you to keep eating more. Um, They look very attractive. They have a long shelf life and they're able to be consumed anytime, anywhere. Um, They're often formulated and marketed in a way that promotes overconsumption. So essentially, these are foods that are engineered by food companies to get you to purchase and eat more of them without regard for their nutritional value or their impact on your health.
1: Right. So real food's a little bit different, actually <laughs> a lot of it different. So real food is in its natural form. It comes from the ground, a tree or an animal. And it's really the food that humans and our ancestors lived on for hundreds of centuries. And it's the food that we evolved to eat.
0: Yeah. So what's the big difference between process and real foods? If they both provide us with calories and we need a certain amount of calories every day, doesn't that, don't they just give you the energy that you need? And this is really where the important distinction comes.
1: Right. And that's the argument of a calorie is a calorie, right? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's not that simple. And frankly, it's it's not really true. And we've really been led astray by that, by that message. So at the end of the day, we do need fuel in the form of calories. We're not denying that, but our bodies also need something else, and that is nutrients. So real food is different from processed food in that it's nutrient dense, meaning that it's packed full of nutrients our bodies need to thrive, vitamins, minerals, and other important molecules.
0: Mm-hmm remember that food does not exist just to make us feel full when we're hungry, Great. right? It actually provides all the building blocks for every single cell in our bodies. It gives us information. It gives our bodies information so that we can maintain a healthy microbiome in our GI tract. It provides information to our DNA, mm-hmm. turning on genes that are important for our health. And without these nutrients, we're lacking very important ingredients needed for optimal metabolic health. And without them, our metabolic health can easily be led astray.
1: So we're going to demonstrate this in an analogy. So think of food as fuel for your bodies in the same way that gasoline is fuel for your car, mm-hmm. right? If you've got a really nice car, you've got a Maserati, you're not going to put regular fuel in there. You're going to pay for the expensive fuel, the premium fuel to keep that, that car running well. Well, the same thing applies to our bodies. If we want our bodies to run well, we're not going to use crappy fuel. We're not mm-hmm. going to eat processed food. To use a very crude analogy that some of you may have heard, it's kind of like peeing in the gas tank. You know, right. garbage in, garbage out. Your your body is not going to run well if you give it processed food to run. So we now know that we need nutrient-dense foods to mm-hmm. thrive, right, for our engines to work, if you will. So what are some examples of those nutrient-dense foods?
0: Yeah, so the most nutrient-dense foods actually include organ meats. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been getting more into these lately. We've been doing a little yes. bit of chicken liver on a regular basis from... A local butcher, so that's been really fun. And some of the most nutrient dense foods out there, mm-hmm. herbs and spices are actually incredibly nutrient dense. Of course, because they're very small, but adding those to your foods can really increase the nutritional value. Nuts and seeds, cacao is actually one of the most nutrient dense foods. Unfortunately, it's usually packaged with a ton of sugar. But yeah, have chocolate. <laughs> yeah, if you can have it um, without all of the sugar, it is incredibly nutrient dense. Fish and seafood red meat, vegetables, eggs, poultry, legumes, and fruits are all some of the most nutrient-dense foods that we have.
1: All right. Let's pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> what does this sound like, guys? I'm going to re- repeat. Sounds familiar. Right. It sounds really familiar. Greg Glassman in, in Fitness in 100 Words, he describes nutrition as eat meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, and no sugar. So really a nice, succinct summary of really what real food is.
0: Yeah. And notice in that list, you didn't hear anything about refined grains, potatoes, or any type of processed or packaged foods, because the nutrient density of those foods is much lower. Mm -hmm. And not only does processed food lack the nutrients that our bodies need to function optimally, because they're engineered to be so hyper-palatable, they also hijack our metabolism and they influence us to eat much more than we actually need.
1: So I'm going to share a little story about how my brain was hijacked. <laughs> I recently—we've
0: all been there. Yes,
1: I, I, we recently bought, or I recently bought. Let's be honest here: um, a bag of potato chips. I had
0: nothing to do with it. It
1: was—they were delicious, but <laughs> they, of course, you know, they were non-GMO, didn't have any crummy oils or whatever. And I wanted to eat half the bag.
0: And they were labeled and, with all the, the the things like gluten-free, yeah. and all those fancy labels. Right,
1: right. So I went in thinking I was going to eat half a bag of chips. And of course, I didn't stand a chance. Now, you know, it's potato chips. Potatoes, you know, probably not the most nutrient-dense food in the world, but definitely not the worst on their own if you're eating kind of like a baked potato. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it was so processed with salt and all these other Oils, Mm -hmm. the crunchiness, everything—I couldn't stop myself. So I fell victim to the the engineering that made that food so addictive. Mm,
0: Ate the whole bag, took up all your macros for the whole day. It's true,
1: we were tracking our macros. (laughs) Kind of a bummer. I was like, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But important to note, right? A a lot of times these food labels can be so confusing because it was labeled with all these things that make you think it's healthy, like gluten free and non-GMO and Mm -hmm. organic and whatever. But if it's coming from a package, it's still been processed in some way. So that's just really an important point that we have to take into consideration and just be aware of. Um, All right. So let's talk a little bit next about the state of processed food consumption in our country. So we know that about three quarters of our population has an eating pattern that's low in vegetables and fruits. That means a majority of people are not eating a lot of vegetables. They're not fruits. listening to
1: their mom. Eat your vegetables.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Eat those green beans. Um, and most Americans have also exceeded the recommendations for added sugars.
1: Right. So let's talk a little bit about added sugar. Yeah, in particular, this is a big one because it's important. So added sugar, I think most of us know, have no nutritional value. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just calories, pretty much, empty calories. Um, but a majority of the food in the grocery store actually has added sugar in it. It's very, very sneaky. It's
0: so sneaky. I mean, just in the past two days. I've been to the grocery store. I've been to the store twice. And one time I was looking for chicken stock Mm -hmm. and I even found all these bottles of chicken stock that were free range and organic. Every single one of them had cane sugar as an ingredient. Same thing goes for tomato sauce. I was looking for a basic tomato sauce. I just want tomatoes. That's it. (laughs) And all of them had cane sugar as an ingredient. So it's very sneaky. And sometimes it'll go by other names too. So maybe Mm -hmm. it's not listed as sugar or cane sugar, but many other names where it just sneaks in there, even when you think you're buying something that's healthy Healthy, or real. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. So to that point, there was a study from 2001 to 2004 that showed that Americans consume 22.2 teaspoons of sugar per day. That's 355 calories of nothing. Of Not just the, sugar. Of three, just almost, sugar.
0: Yeah, 355 calories of just sugar every day. It's just day. crazy. That's a lot. It's just
1: crazy. And to put that in perspective, the World Health Organization recommends that 5% or less than 5% rather of your daily calories come from added sugar in a 2,000 calorie diet. What that equates to is six teaspoons. So there's a big imbalance there from six teaspoons to 22.2 teaspoons. Right. And why does this matter? It's because high sugar consumption has been linked to increased cardiovascular mortality. And the sugar industry has really tried to cover up this link and really shift the blame more towards fat than sugar. And it's incredibly confusing for the public. But but fortunately, now this idea is getting out there that the dangers of sugar, however, I don't think we've all caught on, or well, we may have caught on, but we're, we're fighting an uphill battle. Why is that, Julie?
0: In many ways. In large part, this is because of our toxic food environment, right. which exactly. we've talked about before on the podcast. And it's the fact that these ultra-processed foods, they've been engineered scientifically to be so hyperpalatable and are so freely available. They're constantly surrounding us. They're, on, they're in our workplace. They're on every single corner. They're in every grocery store. They're at eye level. For our children, when we are in the checkout counters, they're impossible to avoid. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the reason that they're so impossible to avoid is, yes, they're available everywhere, but they're also incredibly addictive, as we've talked about with sugar.
1: Yeah. In fact, one study demonstrated that the taste of sugar is more addictive than cocaine. Now, this study was done in rats not humans, but keep in mind that rats are actually a very well-established model for addiction research. Mm -hmm. And these rats were allowed to choose between two different levers. One lever would give the rat a dose of IV cocaine, and the other lever would allow them to drink from a bottle of saccharin, which is a calorie-free sweetener, for 20 seconds. 94% of the rats developed a preference for saccharin over IV cocaine. That's crazy. It's crazy. And the preference was maintained even when those rats received increasing doses of cocaine. And furthermore, when they did this experiment on rats who were already addicted to cocaine, they quickly switched their preference from cocaine over to that sugar-sweetened taste, That's which is crazy. crazy.
0: Yeah. So even if they're already hooked on cocaine, they become more interested in the sugar and become have a preference for that, which is just wild. And this really goes back to our evolution, right? Most mammals have evolved in environments where sugar was very rare. So- we had this innate hypersensitivity to sweetness. You know, we would only come across it every once in a while. And when we came across it, we would want to eat as much as we could Mm -hmm. because that was a good source of calories. But it's only recently in our history as humans that we've now had such abundant access to sugar and sweetness, literally in almost every single food that you find in the grocery store. And so it's just this dangerous combination of us having this incredible hypersensitivity to that sweet taste and stimulating our sweet receptors by these sugar-rich diets, which are now widely available everywhere, that gives us this really intense reward signal to our brains um, that has the potential to override our self-control mechanisms and lead to addiction.
1: Right. So it's that intense, powerful emotion that we get from sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that intense emotion that we want to eliminate. And when we, when we eliminate it, we're really talking about adjusting the food um, quality, mm-hmm. Right. And that's why we really like addressing food quality first out of all the other factors we mentioned, more so than than quantity and timing. Because once we remove that sugar, things can certainly change.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is why so many diets are ineffective too. Initially, you know, willpower prevails for a few mm-hmm. weeks, but no matter how much willpower someone has, right. these foods, are, like we said, they're designed to influence your hormones and your biochemistry and to get you to eat more and more. And they'll usually win in the end because of that. And so- We do have to take their addictive nature very seriously in much the same way that we would approach addiction to any other substance. And not just sugar, also artificial sweeteners can have a similar effect in the brain and our metabolism because they're stimulating those same sweet receptors.
1: Right, right. So it's almost like a period of abstinence that we're... Because it's just, again, it's really hard to fight... those cravings mm-hmm. and those that powerful taste of sugar. So we personally like to remove all processed foods and sugar for a time. Usually 30 days is a good rule of thumb to to start. Some people say 10 days as well, to kind of get yourself off that sugar addiction. And removing sugar from your diet is actually very similar to detoxing from alcohol or or drug. You know, the side effects are surprisingly similar. Headaches, intense craving, irritability. And really we argue if not eating sugar for a period of time has such an intense effect on you. It's probably not something you should be eating regularly in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now, this sounds scary coming off of sugar, right? Some, <laughs> of these, some of these symptoms, as we'll call them, but they typically resolve after about the first week. And it's surprising how well people feel once that intense, once, once mm-hmm. those intense side effects or withdrawal effects disappear.
0: Right. And we've experienced this ourselves and we've heard it time and time again that Often you don't even realize how good you can feel because mm-hmm. you think how you feel every day is normal. But there's this whole new world right. of feeling even better and more clear um, once you kind of remove yourself from that fog that the processed foods create over you. Right. Um, and now once once we're able to actually have some distance from these processed and addicting foods, it's much easier then to make rational decisions about how you may or may not want to incorporate them back into your diet. Mm-hmm. So for some people. They're able to eat them for certain occasions or maybe infrequently acknowledging maybe they don't have nutritional value, but they have some value in participating in social situations or just the taste that they enjoy. But most of the time after eating these foods again, we also don't feel so great because we're getting that, um, that systemic response to the sugar and the non-nutrient-dense foods. And so this can act as a reminder to us that focusing on more nutrient-dense foods makes us feel at our best. Now, for other people, even a very small amount of these foods can be a slippery slope and they opt to keep them out of their diet permanently. So it's more about knowing yourself, self-experimenting and realizing how susceptible you are to that level of addiction. It
1: sounds very similar to alcohol, right? Yeah. Which is another addictive substance. All right. So when removing sugar from your diet, it may also be a nice time to try something else like an elimination diet. And you've probably heard of these before. Essentially, the idea behind them is that certain um food molecules such as gluten and certain things in dairy are commonly associated with symptoms like nasal congestion, GI upset and joint pain in some people and removing these foods for a period of time and then reintroducing them to see if you have a symptom to those foods um can be really really helpful in the long term.
0: Yeah, so it's a good time to do it. If you're going to be removing sugar and processed foods, you know, potentially trying an elimination diet can be helpful too yeah. to help kind of customize what your body needs. Right. All right. So it is pretty easy to get carried away in the details of what's real and what's processed, but it's actually really very easy to distinguish between these things. So we're going to give you some quick kind of go-tos that we personally use to help distinguish between what's a real and what's a processed food. Yeah, I don't want
1: those food companies fool you by making it (laughs) confusing.
0: Right. (laughs) So here are some of the guidelines we use. Number one is, is it a food on the list of most nutrient-dense foods that we just talked about? So things like meat, Fish and seafood, vegetables, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, cacao, legumes, fruit, eggs. If yes, it's probably a real food.
1: Then is it in a package? If it's in a package, it's less likely to be Mm -hmm. a real food. If it's got more than five ingredients, sugar is one of the first three ingredients or ingredients you can't understand, then it's also probably not real food.
0: Yeah. Is it found on the perimeter of the grocery store? This is another easy rule of thumb. General guidelines, but most grocery stores will have the produce, the meat and seafood, the eggs around the perimeter and the aisles are really what contains all of those processed and packaged foods. So we like to personally steer away from them so that we're not tempted, <laughs> especially if you go in there hungry, because it's true, the packaging, the marketing, they make everything look so enticing. Yeah. Um. And so we just like to make sure we stay around yeah. the outside of the grocery you store. You have to
1: remember they've hired some of the smartest people in the world to make this the most addicting stuff in the world. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's hard to resist that stuff. It is. So the last one, the last kind of rule of thumb, which we like and which I think is the most fun is does it pass the michael pollan test and michael pollan is an author who's written extensively about food such he's written books amazing books like the omnivores dilemma in Defense of food and cooked
0: yeah omnivores dilemma is one of my favorites for sure
1: yeah very very good book so his rules for determining whether you're eating real food are one food is something that comes from nature was fed from nature and will eventually rot two don't eat anything your great great grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. And three, if it comes from a plant, eat if it yeah, if it comes from a plant, <laughs> eat it. If it was made in a plant, don't eat it.
0: Keep it pretty simple, yeah, right? Exactly. Very easy to understand. All right. So there is another layer of food quality that we do want to touch on. Um, we've talked about distinguishing real food from processed food, but there is a little bit more detail that we can go into if you're interested. Again, remember, we like to keep this as simple as possible. But unfortunately, a lot of times, even when we choose foods in the categories of most nutrient-dense foods listed above, things like meat, seafood, vegetables, nuts, seeds, et cetera, um, they may still not have been cultivated or grown in their natural environment. So we'll start with produce. Much of the produce that you buy at the grocery store today has been grown in another climate halfway across the world Maybe sprayed with pesticides, and then it's stored and it's shipped to you.
1: Several pesticides have also been linked to cancer. And perhaps the one that you've heard most about in the news is glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. Mm -hmm. Now, Monsanto, Monsanto, who makes Roundup, is facing tens of thousands of lawsuits. You heard that right. Tens of thousands of lawsuits and has already paid hundreds of millions of dollars in damages after glyphosate, the ingredient in Roundup, the weed killer, was linked to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma.
0: Yeah, and the interesting thing is that when you hear about GMOs, you know, maybe not everyone understands what GMOs are, but essentially so much of our crops have been genetically modified in order to withstand the pesticides that are sprayed on them. So, you know, we have these weed killers or these pesticides that are sprayed in order to keep all the bugs and the pests off of our food, but then if we just sprayed them, our all of our food would die too, right? Because <laughs> they're so toxic. So instead, we've genetically modified the food so they can withstand these pesticides, um, and that's what essentially genetically modified organisms are, GMOs. So we don't really fully understand the long-term implications of the GMOs themselves on our health yet, but it's something to think about.
1: But evidence is mounting that the pesticides, which the GMOs are spread with, are probably right. a problem to some degree. Right. So additionally, the longer produce is stored before it gets to you, or you know, longer it spends in transit before it gets to you the less the nutrient content. So Mm -hmm. for example, there was a study that showed that broccoli purchased at the supermarket in the fall when it's in season has twice as much vitamin C when it's purchased in the spring, when it has to be shipped from somewhere else.
0: Yeah. And there are a few ways that we can combat these problems with produce. Number one is buying organic when possible. So Mm -hmm. we know that fruits and vegetables that are labeled as organic, um, have not been sprayed with artificial substances such as fertilizers or pesticides, and organic produce has been shown to have higher antioxidant content as well as lower pesticide residue than non-organic crops.
1: Depending on the crop, it may be more or less likely to be affected by pesticides. Mm-hmm, and every Yep. And every year, the Environmental Working Group puts out a list of the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen. Now, the Clean 15 are 15 produce items that have the lowest pesticide residue and they're safest to eat non-organic. Mm-hmm. The Dirty Dozen, on the other hand, are 12 items that have the highest pesticide residue and are best purchased organic.
0: So you can use this, obviously, to be a little bit more um financially conscious because we know that organic is typically more expensive than non-organic um and as we said again this is all on a spectrum so starting with real food first is going to have a huge impact but if you want to add this next layer then maybe starting with those dirty dozen foods if you're going to be purchasing those think about purchasing those organic if possible yep
1: so buying local also a great idea and as we've previously mentioned even better than buying organic is purchasing local in-season produce, which ensures that it's not been stored and shipped for long periods of time and is more likely to have a higher nutrient mm-hmm. content. We also love purchasing food from our local farmer's market.
0: Or CSA. Or
1: CSA. Yeah. Lots of options. We also encourage you to get to know your farmer. Mm-hmm. Some, of the, some of the farmers actually love when you come and visit and see mm-hmm. where your food is grown. And then you can see for your own, with your own eyes, you know, what they're You're actually putting from. on their food and where your food's coming from. Exactly. Exactly. And then lastly, something that you and I are really excited about doing in the next six months, um, once winter, I think, or yeah, once summer's Maybe here, fall, months, yeah, I, don't I don't know, know. There's we'll a see.
0: lot of coming <laughs> up <laughs> in the year.
1: Sometime in the next 12 months, we are going to plan to start a garden and that's a great way to grow the things that you eat a lot of, cucumbers, tomatoes. Mm-hmm. We're personally really excited about growing raspberries, blackberries, things like that.
0: You're personally excited about that? I'm personally excited I'm about excited that. I'm excited about the kale and the tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good too. <laughs> um, but that will be a fun adventure. Um, So, you know, meat and seafood also fall prey to some similar issues with the way they've been raised. And the topic of the role of meat in a healthy diet is obviously a huge one. It's very polarizing. It's it's an incredibly huge topic in and of itself. So we're not going to get into detail on that here. But for now, we'll suffice it to say that meat is one of the most nutrient-dense foods out there, and it's an important source of complete protein. And we acknowledge it is possible to get enough protein and necessary nutrients from a diet without meat, although it's Difficult, and it requires planning and attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to be mindful of how you're putting those meals and those proteins together.
1: One additional side note: vegans and vegetarians can become deficient in important micronutrients such as B12 compared to omnivores. So it's important to supplement in those situations and work with your your physician to figure out what your micronutrient needs may be.
0: Mm-hmm. But basically, just like produce, there's a big difference between meat that's grass-fed and raised in its natural environment. Versus meat that's raised in factory farms and fed corn, soy, growth hormones, and antibiotics. So we like to think of this, again, as is it real food or is it processed food? This is just another layer of that. You know, the meat that's essentially processed by being in these factory farms is also not, we don't think of as essentially healthy or the best type of fuel to give our bodies. Um, and this goes back to another Michael Pollan quote, you are what you eat eats. So thinking about, you know, is your food, is your, you know, the animal foods that you're eating, if you are eating them, are they eating their natural foods that they would like to eat in nature? Mm-hmm. So for meat, you know, focusing on grass fed and finished, for poultry focusing on free range, for pork, heritage breed pork, and seafood focusing on wild caught and making sure that it's screened for levels of heavy metals like mercury can help to make sure that you are getting good, nutrient-dense foods.
1: All right. Covered a ton of (laughs) ground. We told you we were going to spend a lot of time on quality, but we're obviously really passionate about it and we think it's extremely important. We have to get our bodies the nutrients they need so that we can support healing and health and live a long, healthy life. Mm -hmm. So this approach of allowing us to focus on, this approach really, this initial approach on focusing on quality allows us to maximize the nutrients our bodies need Mm -hmm. um, and really focus on. Um, a good relationship with food rather than just restricting calories.
0: Exactly. Focusing on all the amazing things and nutrient dense things that you can eat instead of trying to restrict.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Now, we are going to acknowledge that quantity is part of this equation too. And that's the next thing that we're going to talk about. Um, There are a lot of ways to approach this, again, with increasing levels of precision. So we'll give you some ways to kind of estimate and ballpark it first, and then we'll get into some of the details. Mm Um. We also find that by f- focusing on food quality first, we-, we found this personally, that we tend to regulate our appetite much better without having to worry about food quantity specifically because the food is so much more satiating, right? Mm-hmm. It's more filling. It's not designed to make you overeat. Um, and we've gotten rid of a lot of those hyperpalatable addictive foods. So a lot of times just switching the quality can help um, with food quantity too. But if someone does want to take their nutrition to the next level, you could think about food quantity as a good next step. There's really two aspects to food quantity. The first is the total amount of food eaten each day. And then the next is looking at ratios of macronutrients. Again, as I said, we're going to start with some simple ways to think about this first, and then we'll talk about more precise ways.
1: Yeah. So first, let's talk about the easiest and most simple method of estimating food quantity. And that's by thinking about your plate um in different sections. So as a general guideline, you can fill a quarter of your plate with meat, about the palm size of your palm, a quarter of your plate with healthy fats, things like avocados, nuts and seeds, then half of your plate with vegetables and fruits. And we always favor vegetables over fruits because they tend to raise your your blood sugar a lot less. So eating three meals a day in that fashion can be a really nice initial approach. And then eating additional snacks of natural food, real food, things Mm -hmm. like nut butter, nuts, fruits, vegetables, hard boiled eggs, hummus, my favorite guacamole. Love um, that guacamole. (laughs) Is a fantastic start.
0: Yeah. We also find that mindful eating can be very helpful for preventing overeating. You know, we found that initially, like I mentioned, when we made some changes to our food quality, we felt much better. But then there did come a point where we would still overeat even on those healthy Mm -hmm. foods. And Recognizing that sometimes this comes from boredom, or from stress, or emotional eating, or sometimes just plain being distracted, right? Like you're watching TV or you're doing something on the computer, and next thing you know, you've eaten an entire tub of guacamole. <laughs> it's as so it's so easy to do. Um, so mindful eating is a concept of focusing on the present moment and being in tune with your thoughts, your feelings, and your sensations while you're eating. And there are some general guidelines that you can use to to try practicing this. The first one, probably the most important is just avoiding distractions while eating. And I think we're all guilty of this, you know, trying to eat through lunchtime or get some work done, answer a few emails while you're eating, maybe even being on your phone because, you know, most of us are not comfortable just sitting and doing nothing or just sitting and focusing on eating. We're always constantly doing something with technology. Um, So putting those distractions away and just focusing on food when you're eating is a good place to start. Then just thinking about starting with a small portion and after eating it, stop to check in and say, are you still hungry before you want to get more? Or is it just because you feel like you need to continue eating or it was so delicious? Um, appreciating and expressing gratitude for our food is something that can be very important too. thinking about everything that it took to get that food onto your table. And I think with that, too, it goes back to, again, understanding where your food comes from. You know, was this something that went through a lot of processing and has been sitting on a shelf for a long time? or Was this something that, you know, a local farmer helped to produce and you bought at a farmer's market and then you brought home and you prepared it and, you know, you put a lot of effort into it. So that's something else that can be really helpful. And then just using your senses. So appreciating the sounds, the smells, the textures of the food as you prepare and you eat it and taking your time. Take some small bites and chew thoroughly. Um, Actually, most food should be chewed 20 to 40 times, which (laughs) I know I don't ever do i've tried it a couple of times and it's very uncomfortable
1: feels so awkward right but
0: <laughs> chewing it that many times does help to release more of the taste and the nutrients so it's something to experiment with for sure
1: yeah so next we'll talk about adding a little bit more precision and that we're going to do that in the way of, of weighing and measuring so um like this this is kind of a a next level a next step mm-hmm. when we're talking about uh, food quantity
0: Yeah, we do have to take a moment to stop here, though. There are some people who this might not be best for, and that's particularly those who have a tendency toward disordered eating. So weighing and measuring can certainly trigger those patterns and it's probably best to stick to general guidelines and following hunger cues if you fall in that category.
1: Very, very important point. Mm All right for so for those who don't fall into that category and do want to add some more precision into their eating patterns weighing and measuring is a way to do that now note that this doesn't have to be a long-term practice this can be just for a couple of weeks or or a month and after about a month or so people usually have a pretty good understanding of portion sizes and how much food they actually need and they're able to you know proceed the third uh, second third fourth month in the future just by eyeballing things and mm-hmm. i typically what i typically do is every you know a couple of months I'll weigh and measure my food again mm-hmm. to kind of recalibrate my eye and that can be a good tool.
0: Yeah. As we mentioned before there's two main measurements that we can hone in on. The first is our overall food quantity, so our overall caloric needs, and the second is our ratio of macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat.
1: All right. So, first let's talk about determining daily caloric needs. Again, this it, this can be done in kind of a ballpark fashion or in a more precise way. We'll talk about more of the ballpark fashion first. Um Health.gov has a table with general guidelines for daily caloric intake depending on age, sex, and activity level. And for adult females, the daily caloric need typically falls between 1,600 and 2,400 calories per day depending on age and activity level again. And for males, it ranges between 2,000 and 3,200 depending on age and activity level. There's also plenty of apps out there where you can plug in similar information, weight, age, activity level, and your desired income. Uh, income
0: uh, outcome, outcome. <laughs> i would love to plug in my desire wouldn't income? that be nice <laughs> I would like a million
1: dollars by the way i'm eating um yeah so d- different outcomes so maintaining your your current body composition would you like to gain muscle or lose fat and then it spits out a um, estimated daily caloric need
0: you can also make this more specific to you if you know your basal metabolic rate and your activity level this makes it more personalized There are equations, very old equations, like the Harris-Benedict equation, which multiplies your basal metabolic rate by an activity factor to determine your caloric needs. Um, Again, some of those methods for estimating body composition that we talked about in Pursuing Health, Pearl's episode 146 on metabolic health, um, can be used to obtain that basal metabolic rate that you could plug into these types of equations. But really, the method you use is much less important than just finding a starting place. So even if it's not super precise, finding a starting place. And then once you start tracking, you'll be able to adjust up or down as needed to find that sweet spot based on your particular body and your goals.
1: All about that experimentation.
0: Oh, yes. The end of one experiment. Yes. (laughs) So powerful.
1: All right. So the next step or option would be to determine macronutrient percentages or ratios or macros as people like to say. So they say. say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So again, this depends on a person's goals, their activity level, and can range anywhere from 1.2 to 2.7 grams per kilogram of body weight. And we've got a table in the blog post as well as a link to a protein intake intake calculator where you can plug in some information and get some some guidance.
0: It's important to note that the United States RDA or recommended daily allowance for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram. And this represents a minimum intake to prevent malnutrition. So it's not necessarily an ideal intake and actually subsequent analyses of the same data used to develop that RDA showed a minimum protein intake of 1.2 grams per kilogram per day to be more appropriate. There are organizations like the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the Dietitians of Canada, and the American College of Sports Medicine that recommend protein intake of 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram per day to optimize recovery from training and promote growth and maintenance of lean mass or muscle. So somewhere in that range as we've talked about somewhere in the 1.2 to 2 to maybe even a little bit higher grams per kilogram per day
1: yep so getting enough protein is especially important in Mm -hmm. older adults where about 40 percent of men and 55 percent of women over the age of 50, have sarcopenia. And what that is, it's an impairment of physical function combined with a loss of muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge problem.
0: It's huge. And it's
1: one of the main reasons that Julie and I see a lot of older folks being admitted to the hospital when we're working in the hospital. Because sarcopenia leads to frailty, falls, fractures, dependence on others, and can ultimately potentially lead to needing additional help and ending up in a Mm -hmm. nursing home.
0: You need more protein and more squats. More
1: squats and protein. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. solves a lot of problems with squats and protein. Mm -hmm. Um, But so older adults, as you might have surmised, need more protein at each meal in order to stimulate muscle synthesis than younger adults. Kind of this, it's almost like protein resistance, if Mm -hmm. you will, Um, similar to insulin resistance, I guess. Um, So for adults greater than the age of 65, it's recommended that they consume 1 to 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And they may actually need up to 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. Um, if they have acute or chronic diseases, with the exception of kidney disease.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So we spent a lot of time talking about caloric, total caloric intake, and protein intake. Now let's talk about carbs and fat. Yep. You know that may be enough for some people. Maybe some people just want to track their protein intake and making sure they're getting enough of that a day, or just their total calories. But if you want to round it out, we'll talk about carbs and fat <laughs> a little bit too. Um, if you want to get more detailed, you can look at the percentage breakdown then of the other two macronutrients, carbs and fat. And if you know your total caloric needs and your protein needs, then what you're left with essentially for the day is carbs and fat. And as a general guideline for a healthy active person, you could split the rest of those calories by percentage in half. So for example, if your protein intake was 30% of your calories, then your carbs and your fat would each make up 35% of calories. So you have a total of 100%. Now, this is a good general starting place, which, again, should be experimented with on a personal basis to see what works best. And you may want to start in a different place, too, depending on your particular goals.
1: So someone's aiming for a someone is less active, rather, and aiming for fat loss, one would want to decrease the percentage of carbs and increase the fat. The same goes with somebody who has metabolic dysfunction. Decreasing the percentage of carbs can actually help to reverse this. Um, someone who is much more active may need a higher percentage of carbs. And we see right, that in people who are- CrossFit you know, Games athletes, athletes. Like yourself professional at one athletes.
0: point, yes. <laughs> so not anymore. I don't need that many carbs no. now. <laughs> yeah.
1: But with that said, you know, work with your personal dietitian or physician to come up up with the right macronutrient percentage for you, for your health, and and for your goals. So the extreme version of a low-carb, high-fat diet would be the ketogenic diet. This is a diet that most of us have heard quite a bit about um, in the media. And this is typically where about or less than 5% of total daily calories come from carbs and aims to achieve a state called nutritional ketosis, where there's a certain level of ketones circulating in the blood. And when doing the ketogenic diet, you typically also have to be mindful of protein intake because eating too much protein can actually kick you out of ketosis and out of that nutritional ketosis. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And we've talked about ketogenic diets in previous episodes of the podcast, for example, with Dr. Dom Agostino in episode 120, who's one of the leading researchers on nutritional ketosis and using that for a variety of different health conditions. So if you're interested in checking that one out, it was a great conversation as well. He's
1: also just an all-around cool dude. Cool dude. Yeah. 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 (laughs) All right. Implementing a (laughs) ketogenic (laughs) diet, blah, blah, uh, (laughs) would be an example of, of, you know, implementing a ketogenic diet um, for, you know, you know, implementing a ketogenic diet can be used in a couple different ways. You know, to to lose weight and things of that nature. But it's also been used as a therapy. Mm-hmm. So in things like epilepsy, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, cancer, and even neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, we're learning that ketones are really, really powerful stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So it's being studied in all of these different conditions, and and does you know have some promise for treating or reversing some of these conditions. So. You know, it's important to note that changing your diet for a therapeutic effect like this, where you're actually trying to address a condition, should generally be done under the supervision of a physician or a dietitian who's well-versed in that condition in that particular type of diet. Yeah. And
1: with the guidance of of somebody who's done this many times and works Mm -hmm. with these folks, you can avoid things like the keto flu and some of the side effects that people Mm -hmm. typically uh, experience with uh, the ketogenic diet. There's a
0: lot to it. There is. Doing it with um, someone who is a professional is important.
1: Safety first.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we've talked about quality. We've talked about quantity. Now the next area that we can focus on to refine our nutritional approach is timing. And depending on the person, it may actually be easier to start here because this is actually a pretty simple thing and it doesn't involve a lot of planning or big changes to food choices or shopping or cooking or new recipes and it can really have a big impact. So again, there's two different factors here that we can pay attention to when it comes to timing. The first being nutrient timing or the timing of when you eat certain macronutrients relative to the time of day or relative to your activity. And then fasting. So when is the window that you're consuming your food throughout the day? And then when is the window that you are not eating throughout the day?
1: Right. So let's talk a little bit about nutrient timing first. Of the three macronutrients, carbs are the most hormonally active. And our sensitivity to carbs changes based on the time of day and our activity level. So let's talk first about time of day. Mm -hmm. Our body functions all operate on a 24-hour circadian clock. So there's a rhythm to everything. And it's largely set by light and darkness that our eyes are exposed to and when we eat and when we don't eat. So in simplest terms, our bodies, our bodies know when it's light out that we're awake, we're taking in food, we're more active, and as a result, certain genes are upregulated in order to support our metabolism. And as a result of this, glucose tolerance or our ability to take in carbs without our blood sugar remaining high for very long is higher in the morning than in the evening. And it's for this reason that focusing on taking in more carb heavy meals in the morning and less in the evening may be beneficial.
0: And that's sort of counterintuitive, right? Because a right. lot of people tend to eat their kind of comfort foods, their bigger meal in the evening for dinner time yeah. when actually they're not as insulin sensitive. So that
1: ice cream after dinner, that yeah. kind of stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that toast before bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I used to eat when I was a kid every night. The
1: cinnamon swirl <laughs> toast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: All right, so now let's talk about macronutrient intake surrounding exercise. This is a big one. So, we'll talk about carbs first. We know that our glucose tolerance increases during and after exercise. So, while we're exercising and our muscles are contracting, they can actually take up 50 times more sugar from the blood without the need for insulin because they're using that fuel really quickly. And we also know that muscles are more sensitive to insulin after exercise. So, because of this, some people would advocate for consuming most of your carbohydrates within three hours during and after exercise. Now, for endurance exercise events greater than two hours in duration, consuming carbs prior to exercise has found to be beneficial for performance. And then finally, consuming carbs solely by themselves or in combination with protein during resistance exercise sessions has also been shown to improve adaptations.
1: So now what about timing of protein intake. We've probably all seen people or done this ourselves of, you know, trying to consume a protein shake after a workout in order to maximize muscle repair and growth. But, you know, it doesn't really appear to be that simple. While it's true that consuming protein within two hours after a workout increases muscle growth, it seems to be more important to get enough of protein throughout the day. Mm-hmm. In fact, proteins remain sensitized, or excuse me, muscles remain sensitized to protein for at least 24 hours following a resistance training session. So consuming about 20 to 40 grams of protein every three to four hours improves muscle growth rates when compared to other ways of eating, and it's associated with improved body composition and performance. And also consuming 30 to 40 grams of casein within 30 minutes of sleep may also improve strength and muscle growth too.
0: So if you're looking for that evening stack, maybe replace the cinnamon and toast with with some casein. (laughs) Yeah, some little changes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So next, let's talk about fasting. This is a very popular topic these days, and there's a good reason for that. There are a lot of different ways to approach fasting and to use it for a therapeutic effect or just to promote general health and good metabolism. Um, Again, this is another area that should be used with caution in certain populations, including those who have a history of disordered eating. Children and pregnant women, of course, we're trying to promote a healthy relationship with food. So, let's first talk about what we know about why periods of fasting can have a positive impact on our metabolic function. So, as we just talked about, our bodies operate on this 24 hour circadian clock that coordinates changes in many different areas of our body so that we can metabolize the food we're taking in during the day. And one of the signals that helps to set the circadian rhythm is our food intake. So, during those periods, you know, during daytime when we're having food coming in, that's signaling and upregulating or, you know, turning on these processes that help us to metabolize. And then during periods of prolonged fasting, our metabolism adjusts to minimize processes that have to do with growth. And instead, it starts to favor the processes that involve maintenance and repair. So this enhances our resistance to stress, allows us to recycle damaged molecules, it improves our glucose regulation, and it also even suppresses inflammation. So all of those things sound like great benefits that we want to have happening in our metabolism. And you can imagine that without those periods of prolonged fasting, our bodies are not given adequate opportunity to do the maintenance and the repair that they need um, to develop that enhanced resistance to stress that's so necessary for optimal metabolic function and health. Now, one study found that more than half of adults eat for greater than 15 hours per day. Now, it sounds like a lot, right? We yeah. laugh, but it's actually not that hard to imagine for most of us. And I know I've certainly done this. Let's say you wake up at 6am for work, you eat something in the car on your way there at seven, and you continue eating meals and snacking throughout the day. Maybe you have to catch a late workout at the gym. Maybe you go to the, you know, 6.30 or 7.30pm class at night because you had a long day at work. By the time you get home, you shower, you eat your dinner, maybe you have your last meal or snack around 10pm before going to bed. That's a 15 hour day of eating. Wow. Yeah, but it's not, you know, it's not unimaginable. So in order to allow our bodies adequate time for this repair and recovery and preserving our metabolic function, fasting at least 12 hours each day can be an important piece of that puzzle.
1: It's really not that hard if you think about it. You eat your first meal at 6 and then you finish dinner maybe 6, 6.30. Mm-hmm. It's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Finish at 6, that's 12 hours. Oh, it's at 6, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but it is hard. Like Think about if you don't get home from work till 6, you, know, right. yeah. you have to adjust. So thinking about you know, how are you going to develop that window? Do you want to eat breakfast a little bit later? Or are you going to make sure that you get your dinner in early?
1: Yeah. So fasting's also been studied in humans and found to improve a variety of different conditions too. So it can be thought of as a therapy to some degree. Mm-hmm. So obesity, insulin resistance, cholesterol problems, high blood pressure, inflammation, those can all be improved by fasting. And, and those
0: sound pretty familiar, right? Yeah. We just spent our whole last episode talking about those with metabolic syndrome.
1: Yeah. So- Fasting, powerful tool to address those for sure. So beyond that too, it's also been shown to put us more into that parasympathetic state, that rest and digest state, that state that we spend so little time in, Mm -hmm. in this kind of go, go, go uh, lifestyle that we live. And, you know, our relationship with food and how we consume food can kind of push us more into that parasympathetic state. So it's another tool in our toolbox. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, intermittent fasting is also thought to repair metabolism in cancer cells by inhibiting their growth and making them more susceptible to treatment. So interesting stuff. We're learning a lot about fasting mm-hmm. and it's kind of hinting, all these things are hinting that it's probably something that's in, that we should be doing and how, you know, in terms of we evolved to fast. This was probably right. an important part of our physiology.
0: Right. And it's been a, an important part of so many different cultures and so many religions over the years. And again, somehow we've maybe lost touch with this because of our, you know, toxic food environment where we have this food that's constantly available and so addicting. So there are several different ways to incorporate periods of fasting. We're going to talk about a few of them here, um, but we've listed a whole bunch of them in the blog post associated with this podcast. Um, So time-restricted feeding is one, essentially where you're restricting your feeding to a window throughout the day. Um, And you're having a fasting window that's somewhere between 12 and 16 hours. And again, this can be worked up too. So maybe you start with 12 hours of fasting and then maybe you go to 14 and then maybe try 16. Um, But it's a way to consistently have that period of fasting every single day. Now, there's also the five and two method, which is where you essentially take two days per week with a restricted calorie intake. Ultimately, working down you know slowly over time to get to maybe even 500 calories per day on those days, and then having unrestricted feeding on the other five days. You can also, of course, fast periodically. maybe you do it one or two days a week, maybe you do it once a month, um, and then have unrestricted eating on the other days. The fasting mimicking diet is also something that we've been really interested in, um, and I had Dr. Walter Longo who really has done all of the research on this particular type of diet on the podcast back in episode 112. Essentially, this is having a reduced calorie intake for five whole days in a row um, and doing that periodically. So in a lot of his experiments, especially looking at models of things like MS or other autoimmune diseases, um, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, they're doing it for five days a month and then repeating that for three months in a row. Um, but maybe if you're you're just doing it for general health, maybe less often, maybe once or twice a year. So. As always, we've covered a lot of ground here in this episode. Um, This is our general approach to nutrition. Like we said, it's a 30,000 foot view and how we like to think about food quality, quantity, and timing. We try to keep it as simple as possible. For food quality, is it real food or is it processed food? If it's real food, was it raised or grown in its natural environment? If yes, then it's probably um, safe to eat. Quantity, this can be simple. Again, using a method of building your plate and practicing some mindful eating. Or you can make it more precise with weighing and measuring to estimate your total caloric needs, your protein needs, and your macronutrient percentages based on your particular goals.
1: When it comes to timing, our metabolism changes with our circadian clock and activity levels, and we can take advantage of this by consuming certain macronutrients at specific times. For example, consuming carbs earlier in the day and around exercise when our body's more insulin sensitive. And with regards to protein, making sure to take in high quality protein regularly throughout the day is important for maximizing muscle growth and health. Fasting is another great tool we can take advantage of. It provides our bodies time to repair, get rid of those damaged molecules and materials, and build resilience to stress. And these are all crucial processes. So allowing a fasting window of 12 hours per day can support a healthy metabolism.
0: Remember, this is just one approach. And we find that with nutrition, self-experimentation is key because again, nutrition is highly individual and it changes throughout different phases of life. Working one-on-one with a dietitian is a great way to individualize a nutrition plan after getting these big pieces in place. And above all, remember that nutrition is about progress, not perfection. We've learned this ourselves over and over again, but it always helps to start with something very small, have success there, and then build on it and refine it over time. This does not have to happen all at once, Um, but it can be worked on over the course of our lifetimes and modified and adapted to meet our needs.
1: All right, guys. That's all we have for you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Before we go, we do want to remind you that we have a strong commitment to not having sponsors on the podcast in order to remain as unbiased as possible for you. We never want you to think that we're telling you something just because we're getting paid to say it.
0: And the only way for us to continue to do what we do here and bring you this content is with the support of you, our listeners. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other podcast episodes and you'd like to show your support, please head over to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber. Again, you can do this for as little as $4.99 per month. We each give up a latte every month in order to do this for other podcasts and media outlets that we find valuable. And we hope you'll consider supporting us in a similar way.
1: So not only will you support us in what we're doing, but you'll also get access to our workout programs, our exclusive discount codes, a live Q&A that we do every month for our subscribers, which is a ton of fun. So again, guys, we'd really appreciate it. Please head over to pursuing-health.com slash subscribe to show your support. And thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Pursuing Health Pearls.
0: Bye guys.